Take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 13. It's been a number of years now, but uh, served at a church down the Rio Grande Valley that had some guys in it who were genuine fishermen, and they liked to go offshore to fish. And uh, when they asked me to go with them one day, I was relatively excited about that because I knew that it was an invitation to go actually catch fish and not just sit down around a body of water for a while like I normally did when I fished. And uh, so from the valley down there, uh, the place that they had a little fishing camp set up was, uh, a, that means they had a house and all down there, but it was a, uh, at Port Mansfield, which is a little fishing community. And it's uh, probably 50 miles or so north of the uh, Rio Grande River where it dumps into the Gulf. And uh, at Port Mansfield, you go across the bay onto what is now called South Padre Island. And uh, they had to cut through that island there. And they called it the cut. And the reason that's important is because it was almost probably 45 minutes to an hour boat ride from Port Mansfield out to the jetties into the Gulf. And the way it turned, this particular group of guys, they like to fish for real fish. Uh, what I mean by that is the kind that are big. And so we would go 100 miles offshore, 75 miles offshore when we go fishing with them, which means that we had to leave at dark 30 to get there, almost an hour to the jetties, and then on beyond that 100 miles offshore just takes a while to get there. So in order to get to the fishing grounds by the time you really want to be there early in the morning. We were leaving Port Mansfield on the boat about 3, 3.30 there about in the morning. Now, whatever else you want to do, uh, if you're just sitting on a boat at 3.30 in the morning and it's pitch black everywhere and you're not driving that boat, it's a good time to try to sleep. Except these guys would have none of that. And I was sitting there and we were talking and I noticed that the captain of the boat every once in a while would turn around and look where I was sitting Now, I'm a little self-conscious about that, okay, because I was trying to sleep. He didn't want me to sleep, and I thought he was checking up on me. And finally, after a while, I said, hey, man, why do you keep looking at me? He said, this is not about you. He said, actually, he said, I want you to turn around and look. And so I turned around, and I looked, and he said, you see that big light right back there immediately behind us that's actually on the shore from where we had come? And I said, yeah. He said, uh, let me show you something. And so he took the boat and he turned it off to the left a little bit. And that light magically became two lights. And he kept going that direction until the two lights suddenly became three lights. And so I said, okay, so? (laughs) And he said, here's the deal. He said, One of the realities is where they cut through this for us to get our boat through the cut into the gulf. Uh, There is a channel that you have to find, and everything outside of that is very shallow water. And if you don't stay in that channel, then you'll beach your boat, and not only will you not get to go fishing, you'll have to have somebody come and haul you off of that place where it's so shallow. So what I learned years ago is where everybody else focusing forward and all that, he said, I learned that if I keep my eyes backwards, then I can keep those three lights in line and I stay right in the center of the channel where we need to go. Now, I want you to hold on to that because there's a lot of application for that truth as it relates to our spiritual lives, but I want to use it to apply to what we're doing here today in this series that we're working on, how to behave As Christian people, there are three lights, if you will, three central truths that should be lining up for us now. 
Here's the first one. We're created to share divine love. In fact, we're perfected by divine love. And we started this series on Easter Sunday in John chapter 3 and verse 16, where we read there, for God so, what does it say? Loved who? The world. Now, how do we normally sell that? We normally say, take the world out of there and put your name in there. Well, that's a good way to do it, okay? God so loved you and me and us and everybody, he loved us so much that he gave his son. The reason that was necessary is because a sin nature that each of us bears with us has the unique ability and ultimate reality separates us from God. God's love reaches into that need and he pulls us to himself. We, are, we have the opportunity through Jesus Christ to share in divine love. That's the first of those lights that should be coming into this study for us by this time. We are perfected by that love. Without it, life is not even yours to have, if I understand Scripture correctly, and I think I do at that point. So the second truth, the second light, if you will, that comes into line for us here is that because of the sin that we have, we tend to twist God's love and make it selfish. Now, I don't want to take a whole lot of time because I don't have a whole lot of time today, but I could establish this for us, and I've tried to do that now for several weeks, and the reality is that love that we get from God that perfects us, we tend to take and twist it, and so we make it like it's all about us. And the reality is it's all about God who loves us. This is a good time for me to remind you of my definition, the working definition that we have in this whole study that we've been doing, and that is love is that investment in another that elevates them to a place they could never get to on their own. That is true in God's love for us. If it were not for Jesus Christ, God reaching down to us, investing in us through his son Jesus Christ, we would never have the opportunity for life. That's also true in your marriage, if you happen to be married, I'm struggling with whether or not to say this. I'll just go ahead and say it. Probably since I'm struggling, I shouldn't, but I'll go ahead. Even if you're in marriage and you're not sure you want to be in marriage today, that is true about love. It is not about what that other person does for you. Do not base your decision about whether you're going to stay in a marriage based on how that person makes you feel. It is an investment of you into them. That's what love does. And it elevates that person to a level they could never get to alone. When a marriage does that where both people are doing that, it's an incredible thing to watch. But it's also true of parents and kids. And it's true in church members with one another. It's true in us with the world at large. The reality is that we take love that is, God, is a divine thing, this thing called love, and we twist it and we make it about us. So two lights come together for us and form one central truth. We're created for love. We have the opportunity to share in that divine love. We're perfected by it, and yet we take that love and we twist it and we make it about us. And so the third one then is the one that really kind of helps pull it together. We need God to get it right. 
We don't need God to get it right. We need God for us to get it right. Because we're so eaten up with sin. We so struggle with the selfish part of this that when we just left to ourselves, it always becomes about us and we twist it and all of a sudden divine love has taken a back seat to whatever we want to call it. When we get love right, internal church dynamics and our external witness becomes attractive to people. Let me say that again, okay? Because essentially, I'm going to say that five or six different times in the next 10 minutes or so. The reality is when we get love right, where it's an investment from us into somebody else, when we get that right, it totally changes the internal dynamics of the church. Well, maybe I should say it this way. It totally changes the internal dynamics of the normal church that actually is so abnormal that we've come to call it normal. Because the normal thing for God's people is that we love like this. Jesus told us to love like he loves. John told us in his little writings called the first epistle of John, Beloved, love one another, for love is from God. But that's so abnormal in our world today that many churches, the last thing you expect to find there is love as God loves us. But when we get it right, it becomes appealing to people. And when we get it right, not just internally, but externally as well, the world takes notice of that. This is so counterculture. It's so subversive, this divine love that we've been talking about, that when you finally see it somewhere where it's operating the way God intended it to operate, everybody can see that it's there. My dad used to say regularly, quality is hard to find, But it's not hard to recognize. That's love in the life of God's people. All of that sums up the 1 Corinthian letter. We find ourselves today in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, for how many, what, the dozenth time now, or however many times we've been in there. We're making great progress. Five weeks in, and we're almost halfway through the verse. In several different translations, here's what we find today. In the King James Version... It says it in very 1600 kind of language. Love envieth not. My suspicion is that most of you didn't go around talking like that today. So we kind of prefer what we find in the ESV, which is why I preach out of, or the New International Version, which says love does not envy. Now, both of those get it right because uh, it gets the verb part of it, not just an adjective describing love. It is the action part of it. Love does not envy. But I've thrown the New American Standard in here. It's still by far my favorite translation of the of scriptures in the modern days. New American Standard. It's more uh, literal on a word by word basis. I like it the best. I just don't preach out of it because the language is a little archaic now. But they capture a nuance of this that I want us to talk about for just a couple of minutes this morning. I don't want to bore you with big deep word studies or anything like that. But this is one of those times we need to catch the nuance of what's happening in this word. If we're to behave the way God has called us to as his people, and if we're to get love right, we need this nuance to come alive for us. So the New American Standard says love is not jealous, which is a little different in our thinking most of the time than when we say uh, is not envious. Both of these fit as it relates to church life. There's a positive element to this. I don't have the time. I could probably preach three different sermons 
on the positive use of the term. I'll just give you a heads up, or, you know, just kind of an insight into that. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but uh, it's the same word that we get the word zealot from. You remember Jesus and his group of disciples and those ones that he picked to be the, the, the ones, the 12 who would follow him. There was one who was called Simon the Zealot. The zealots in Jesus' day were the ones who were Jewish and who absolutely hated Roman occupation of the Jewish people. They were zealous for their cause. And so even after the time of Jesus, they helped to do an insurrection that caused the Romans to just crack down on the whole group of people and destroy the temple in 70 AD, thereabouts. Zealous. We take that usually as kind of a positive thing, and that's part of this word here, but Paul uses it in a negative sense, and I don't want to be overly negative today, but he kind of sets me up for that, Paul does. So let me give you a couple of minutes of what he's saying and how we should take that. Actually, the term itself captures what Paul has seen. I don't know if you've noticed in this little stretch of Scripture. Go back and read some other time, preferably. But from verse 4 through verse 9, I've told you before, there seem, what did I say, 15 different explanations or characteristics of love that are given there. If you'll notice, the first two, the ones that we've already studied, are stated positively. Love suffers long. Love is kind or shows kindness. Those are positive kind of statements. Now Paul turns it and this becomes one after another that's stated negatively. Love is not envious. He goes on to say, love is, let me find myself here. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not boast. That goes with part of what we're doing today. It does not insist on its own way. You see how he states it negatively? Now, that's been one of those things in Bible study that's caused a lot of scholars through the years and Bible students like you and me to look at that, see the difference, go, why didn't he just, you know, why does he have to be so negative? I hear that a lot in our day, not necessarily about me, although some about me. Uh, I hear that from people. You know, that preacher, all he ever wants to do, you know, I shouldn't have worn, well, you get what I'm talking about. Stepping on my toes, you're kicking me in the shins. I like what one preacher said. If I stepped on your toes, it's missed because I was aiming for your heart. A lot of people say, he's just, he's just a mean preacher. He's always hacking on us. That's what Paul's doing here. So it looks that way. We've got to look at that and go, what's going on? Because he starts off in a much more positive vein. By the time we get here, though, he's turned it. I, I like what one scholar said. I think he's probably on to something. If you turn these phrases a little bit and you take out the negative, the not part of this, and take off the love is part of that and put in you are. So now Paul's talking directly to these Corinthian people. And what we find Paul doing is, in a nice way, he's highlighting what's wrong with them. So let me try that and let you so see what I'm talking about. He says, love is patient, love is kind. You are envious and you are boastful and you are arrogant and you are rude and you do always insist on your own way. We could just walk our way through that. What we find is that actually captures what Paul has done in these first 12 chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. He has talked to a church that is full of dysfunction. They mirror the culture of their day. The culture of their day, Greco-Roman society at this place called Corinth where the crossroads of east meets west came together. 
where people from one side of the Roman Empire were making their way to the other side of the Roman Empire and they brought all of their ways of doing stuff with them. The ways of doing stuff in the Greco-Roman world is much like in the 21st century world that we live in and that is do whatever you have to do to get on top of somebody else. Keep climbing the ladder, step on whoever you have to in the process. The Corinthian church was one that was so dysfunctional when it came to the way they treated each other. And the reason they treated each other that way is because they were buying into the world system that said you need to get to a higher class of living. It's into that that Paul writes this letter. Not hard to find a contemporary church like that. Is it a church that is marked by division because people are playing themselves one against the other? A church marked by posturing? A church full of patronizing behavior? Just like the first Corinthian church that we find in this letter because they buy into a world system that totally ignores the love of God. And Paul's concern, always Paul's concern, the letters that he writes to these churches and especially the Corinthian churches always is, in, is concerned with internal dynamics. How you treat people matters. And they were so mistreating one another that it kicked in the other part for Paul that was always part of him. He's doggedly evangelistic, Paul was. And so in 1 Corinthians, through these first 12 chapters that brings us to this, Paul is saying, you get it so wrong inside the church that now you're killing your witness outside the church. So that's why he comes in and he starts talking about love and he says, we've got to fix it inside, otherwise it doesn't do any good for you even to take the good news outside because you're just killing the whole cause. You know churches like that? You ever been to a church? You ever know or hear hear of a church where they so fight with one another? It's so much about the divisions inside the church and the posturing. Who's going to be empowered now inside the church? That the people outside the church who hear about it go, I wouldn't even dream of going to church like that. I don't need to go to church to get that. I get that all over the world I live in. So Paul says, notably, you guys are envious and you're jealous and you're not loving at all. So let me give you the principle that I want us to work with today, and then I'll take a few steps with it, and we'll be done. Here's the principle. Jealousy or envy, we use it both ways because we have different translations that use it both ways. The word itself opens the door for that. Jealousy or envy is a strong indicator of a people who have eye trouble. This is not the vision trouble. This is the eye trouble. It's all always about me. You didn't do this and I don't like that. You did that and I don't like that. You intended to hurt me with that. This is what you did. This is what they did. This is what about me? By the way, in case you're getting a little bit offended there, that's the world we live in. That's all of us. We're all eaten up with eye problems because we want to push ourselves to the surface of anything and everything every time. But that's not how it should be. Jealousy and envy help us see, and it just causes us to know that person has a spiritual issue. Here's the nuance. Let me, let me, 
define both of these words for us. And maybe that will help us get what Paul's driving at here. It's a little negative, and I'm sorry about that, but Paul sets us up for that. Here's the first one. And I know that I'm, I may be even overstating this, oversimplifying uh, this particular uh, definition, but it's important that we get it. Uh, I'm going to say it this way. Envy is focused on what others have, whereas jealousy is focused on who others are. Let me see if I can play that out for you using the First Corinthian Church or the Corinthian Church for you. First of all, Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online defines envy this way: it is painful and resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. Let me give that to you one more time. Envy is the painful or the resentful awareness of the advantage somebody else has. Coupled with a desire to have the same advantage for ourselves. It's different from covetousness. Covetousness says, I want what you have. I want your car. I want your house. I want your life. Envy is different. Envy deals with the political part of living that we all have to deal with. Envy is the one that says, you have an advantage, and I don't like that about you. But I'm going to try to steal it away from you. That's... That's in the Corinthian churches left and right. You know, the whole thing about the, their love. Sometimes when I do uh, uh, Lord's Supper service, I use Paul's Corinthian account of the Lord's Supper. And Paul went back to that, what happened in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples at that first Lord's Supper. He used it with the Corinthian church, churches there, because they had what was called love feasts. And they did and practiced their, whether you call it communion or whatever you call it, we call it Lord's Supper here, but they practiced that in conjunction with these huge feasts that they would throw. But those feasts give evidence of what we're talking about here because they would, again, the society was stratified, okay? If you were born up here at the high level, you could feasibly go down to a lower level, but if you were born at a lower level, you could never make it to the upper stuff, even though they tried so you're born into what you're born into. You had to make peace with that, but they didn't make peace with that because the Roman way was to triumph. So they were always playing each other against one another. So in these love feasts, these church gatherings of worship, they started holding them. Some of them did. Of course, remember, their, their church services were in homes. So by definition, they had to be in homes that were large enough to handle a crowd of people. Well, the only people who had homes large enough to handle a crowd of people were the people who were a little more advanced in the social scale. So what started to happen, among other things, was they started having those love feasts, the meals before the church service, they started having them earlier in the day. And what that meant was the only people who could come to them were the ones who didn't have to work for a living. They were the ones who owned the businesses or had some other kind of job. But what happened was they could all go. In other words, the people with money would go early. They would go and get wasted, get drunk, you know, the fresh wine and all that kind of stuff. Typical Baptist meeting. <clears throat> and then the people who had to work for a living, me and you, had to stay in the shop, close the shop down at the end of the day, get our stuff together, and then go to church. By the time they got there, all the good food was gone, all the good wine was gone. And everybody was saying, hey, let's worship. We're all together. We love one another. It's a love feast. 
But that caused those people like you and me to become envious of the status that the others had. It's not unusual. That was Greco-Roman life. Only problem with that, as Paul tells us in Galatians, is that in Christ, all are equal. And so what was happening inside the church, there was this division that started happening. So we go into 1 Corinthians again, the first few chapters, and Paul opens up by saying, I hear some of you saying, well, I follow Paul, and others saying, well, I follow Apollos, and some say, well, I follow Simon Peter, and the really holy ones say, well, we follow Jesus. And Paul says, you bunch of knuckleheads, you're killing each other and you're killing your witness because of envy. Painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by others joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. In other words, I'm going to be just like you. I'm going to get it and I'm going to hold on to it and I don't care if it kills you. I don't want to get political up here, but I challenge you to watch the national news for a week and not see that written across nearly every story that they give. We have a political party, a group of people in America today who are not satisfied with the ones who are in power. And so they gripe and they bellyache and they accuse all with the intent of being in power after the next election. It's America. It's not limited to first century Greco-Roman world. This is America. This is people stuff. It's not hard to find this in 21st century American churches either. I don't have... I'm out of time, actually. I've seen this in so many places. I served a church where if you weren't in the chosen ministry of that church, I could tell you what it was. I could tell you, ooh, I could tell you stories. If you weren't in the chosen ministry of that church, you didn't get calendar space, you didn't get budget money, you didn't get a fine thank you, how do you do? And the people in the church who weren't part of the chosen ministry of that church were envious. And people got chewed up. Let me tell you something. If people, any people, inside a church or outside of it, if people perceive that there is an in-group in a church, that church has love problems. Jealousy. The nuance now. Jealousy is focused on who others are, not what they have, not the status and not the stroke that they have. I like what uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary says about jealousy. It is zealous vigilance. That captures the word in Greek. It is watching, intently watching and waiting for the opportunity. Here's the rest of that definition. Hostile toward a rival or one believed to enjoy an advantage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. I'll just read it real quick. Here's what it says. Paul says to them, I'll read verse 2 and 3. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy, same word as we're in chapter 13. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? A church marked by division is a church where love has failed. 
That's what Paul says. And that was certainly the church that they were in. Churches find leaders that they love, people do, find leaders that they love to follow and rally around. And when that happens in a church and starts playing one ministry against another, church loses. The cause of Christ loses. So here's a truth for you. Christian love refuses to accept societal standards that diminish other people. I want to turn this in about two minutes. I'll give you all I can in two minutes and we'll be done. We need to turn this to a positive thing. The fact of the matter is too many churches are marked by rivalry and division. And that could be this church as easily. It could be the one across the street or down the street or across town. Churches have problems with this. Divisions. Rivalry. We have to hear the bottom line truth that Paul's pushing here. And it is that kills our witness and it kills our people. So we got to do better than that. How do we do better than that? Let me put it in terms that we all will get better. Okay. How does a church overcome its reputation of being cliquish? Does that term, you understand that term? A click and a cliquish kind of church. At the risk of being a little too obvious, the answer to the question is really simple. How does a church overcome being cliquish? Cliquish? Click? You might clip a few. That would help probably. <laughs> How does the church overcome its reputation of being cliquish? Here's the answer. Stop being cliquish. But that's not easy. As a matter of fact, if we had a lot of time here, I would establish for you just how hard that is for us. Our whole society is set up on being cliquish. You want a good example of that? Let me take our high school kids here, okay? We have down the road this way, Lumberton High School. We have down the road this way. What's the name of that school? I knew that. Coons High School. All right, let's say. Let's say that Lumberton High School and Coons High School are going to play each other in basketball. Now, I'm going to tell you, first of all, Lumberton needs help. Before we ever get started, Lumberton needs help. Okay? Now, I'm not picking on anybody. Okay? It's reality. But what goes into that dynamic of these two schools playing each other in a sporting contest? First of all, what is a coach going to tell each of those teams? I want you to go out there and I just want you to love on them. Okay? I want you to invest yourself in them so that they achieve better. Is that what they're going to hear? That coach would never make it through the season. That coach, if he's worth anything, is going to say to those kids, you go out there and kill them. Right? Now, I played for coaches who would say, go out there, and is she their star player over there? You make sure he goes out on a stretcher. Some, church, some guys take this seriously, just like some church people do, this winning thing. Our society sets up division. And so we have a town, we have a church with two towns, actually three, actually four. Actually, we could go to five or six different high schools represented in our church body. And we're coming together saying, oh, we just want to love each other. We're all going to be part of this. No divisions. Meanwhile, our teenagers live in a society that's just like the ones you work in that says, no, you're going to be separate. And it's one department against another at work. And it's one family member against another in your family reunions. And it's just everywhere. It's no wonder that churches struggle with being cliquish. 
But you know, you've got to realize it diminishes our capacity to do what God called us to do when we buy into that. Christian love refuses to accept societal standards that diminish others. If you're playing basketball for one of those two teams, by all means, go out there and kill the other team in a friendly, sporting kind of way. But when you start diminishing who those players are because they don't go to your school, that's wrong. There's a problem in churches. When I was serving, Robert and I serving in Edinburgh, we had a church that had some issues with this. Went to one of my professors. Souped up guy. I mean, all kinds of credentials. I have great respect for him even today. He was serving in one of the biggest churches, one of the richest churches in the whole Southern Baptist Convention. He was the executive pastor for a while. He had 40 ordained ministers underneath him. Huge church. And I asked him, how do you, how do you deal with division in the church? Because with that many people, how could you possibly be unified? He said, we don't worry about it. Hello? You don't worry about unity in the church? He said, no. He said, we know that the small group stuff is just part of how society is, so here's what we do. We tell our small groups, you need to be porous. You need to make room for other people. Let the walls breathe. Let people in. And as people step out, let them out. But make sure that they get into other groups, okay? When we reach new people, if we can't get them into a group, we need to start a new group with them. It's brilliant. Except it's hard. And for a church like ours, who must overcome a reputation of clickishness. We got to get this love thing right. Love is not envious. It's not jealous. Just because you're not in a group that you perceive to be the end group doesn't mean you're not somebody. By the way, if there is a group that thinks you're the end group, stop. Just stop. And if you won't stop, then stop coming. Let's pray. I know that I've gone way over time here. Sorry for that. Also know that I've said enough to light some people up. There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, Perfect peace have those whose mind is stayed on you and nothing shall offend them. So, Father, we ask you to complete this message for us. Help us get it right. Give us a vision for those people who desperately need us to get it right. Don't let us rest until we get it right. And, Father, I ask you to start now in the hearts of people because ultimately that's where it has to happen. We know that. Help us all to be committed to getting this love thing right for the good of the kingdom of God, for the eternity, the souls that are just outside our door. Help us get it right. In Jesus' name we pray.